which is, it sounds really odd now that I say it. It sounds as if I'm arguing that her disobedience is her first act of freedom. That's very deviant, and I'm aware of exactly how deviant it sounds, but I guess maybe that is what I think. So. So I have another question then, which is whether that has any impact on your earlier statement that psyche and oral are sort of on equal footing epistemically. Do you think that this situation in sort of like all all the, all of what you just talked about as far as whether her spiritual posture before the gods, whether her own versus psyches has anything to do with whether they are actually on the same epistemic footing. So I think that I maintain that I think that both Psyche and Orwall were in some sense in the wrong because of their approach to the situation. I don't think, well, the, the sense in which I think that they are on the same epistemic footing is that they both are just human subjects in a world that's run by divinities, right? Like that, in, that, in that sense, they're both victims because they can't help what they're experiencing as far as, it, as, far as their brute perception goes. I grant where they differ is in their comportment. And I think that that, I'm not even sure if that's fully epistemic. I think it's kind of a different moral comportment. Because I do think that Orwall can be blamed for some of the things that she does, certainly for coercing Psyche into betraying her husband. But- um, Yeah, that was a terrible thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's to my everlasting shame that when I first read it, I thought it was glorious and it excited me. I was like, yes. Um, and of course it turns out to be one of the first signs of one of the most salient signs of abuse in a relationship that the other, you know, threatens suicide. Uh, so yeah, no kidding. So the sense in which that I think that they're epistemically peers is the sense in which I get the impression that to some extent they can't help all the things that have led to their perception and comportment towards what they're perceiving. And so the grounds of their belief or disbelief are kind of equal. But I do think that that is something to, it, it is important that Orwall, after she has her experience of the castle, like I think that they're perfectly equal in terms of Orwall's inability to perceive the castle at first. But after she sees it, what she does with the fact that she saw it and the fact that she systematically withholds the information from the fox and from Bardia. I don't think that Bardia would be terribly interested actually in the information, honestly, but the fox would have been very interested in the information. And it's a, it's a testament to the complexity of the relationship that she doesn't feel comfortable sharing it with the fox. Um, yeah. But yeah, in that sense, I completely agree. Like Orwell really messed up at that point. But at the same time, I, I'm also sensitive to the fact that it might've been one of those situations where because of her habitual pride and because of her, additionally, again, the possessiveness she has towards Psyche and towards what she cares about, it wouldn't surprise me if, well, actually, I just, I just don't think that Orwell did realize that that made a difference. Um, even though she kind of accidentally betrays herself and she's mentioning, yeah, I've been kneeling this whole time. And then once I stood up, I stopped seeing it. And that's the sort of thing, that's the kind of detail that would characteristically escape her notice until, again, the latter part of the book, where it all seems to kind of come together. I still think that they're in some sense epistemic peers, at least initially, but 
the story is complicated by what Orwald does with that seeing that she has. But I do think it's super important that the seeing that she does have, of all things, is a seeing which she only has as so long as she's actually on her knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so here's the other thing then is that you have to wonder then if perhaps like Psyche, ah, what's a good way to put this? It seems like their epistemic culpability is now tied to just their general moral culpability right in this moment if it's true that what you can come to know or sense is in some way contingent on your own spiritual or moral state and so certainly psyche was in a better state just generally (laughs) than oral was sort of by nature that was sort of her defining attribute besides just being beautiful was that she was morally beautiful as well and so you, you can imagine the psyche already being in this very, very humble state, and therefore capable of perceiving all of this on a very consistent basis. So then you wonder if maybe Orwell would be to blame for her whole mess, even if she hadn't seen the palace. Because here you see that any any knowledge of the palace is in some way, like I said, contingent, perhaps. Yeah, so I, I think really just that there's this relationship right? I guess to put it simply, there's a relationship between their epistemic culpability and their moral culpability. So Psyche, being morally pure, is able to see the palace and interact with all these things, and is therefore sort of free or innocent on all counts. But then Orwell, we see, is not able to see the palace, perhaps because of her pride, and that makes her guilty after she sees the palace, right? Because her pride won't let her do anything about it. But also, if her pride was what was keeping her from seeing in the palace in the first place, then again, perhaps if she hadn't even seen the palace at all, she would still be culpable at the end of the day. That's sort of my my case. I think that leaves Psyche innocent, epistemically. So if moral culpability is connected to epistemic culpability, like we've sort of theorized here, um, then that would mean that psyche being morally innocent is also epistemically innocent and that she's able to see all of these things because of her like pure moral state. And then we see that Orwell, because of her pride, is not able to see the palace right after she gets up off of her knees which shows that because of her moral impurity she's epistemically at fault as well which means perhaps that even if she hadn't seen the palace at all because any side of the palace was contingent on her moral state which is already flawed that means that even if she had never seen the palace she would still be culpable in every way while psyche is innocent in every way so does that sound accurate at all to you guys, or, or is something wrong with that line of reasoning? Ethan, I have thoughts, but <laughs> do you... For me, Oro's culpability stuff wasn't quite contingent on what she did after she saw the power. And for me, I, it's why I proposed everything that she said about there being a moment when can um, hear of the gods speak. I think she never actually reached that moment. So whether she saw it or not, she will still have been culpable. To, well, not, I'll use culpable in this way, but she will still have been culpable to the extent that 
she never reached that point. She never reached that comparative point of psyche to which she could have seen a psyche did. That's one thing that I would say. And then you could bring in the culpability that comes from actually having sin, but then hiding. This is in the way she interacted with Fox and Bardia. I still, like I said at the start, commend her for writing this so that the judgment is made of the Greek who reads this because she, she does write that it happened even though she doesn't tell it to Bardia or the Fox. Right. So you could see that it's, she realizes that it's an important part of the narrative and whoever's going to make a decision has to make a holistic enough decision so that the person is completely informed in that sense. So in the fact that she saw but never actually, I, I think she compartmentalized the information because going forward from that moment, it never in so much as influenced her deeds. She never did much about it in so much as it was just knowledge that she had mentally. She never, like we said, told Bardell the fox. It never stopped her from going ahead to induce Psyche's action. It's it just, it was information that she had but never quite used. In that sense, she's quite culpable, I'd say. But I think that going off of the point I made earlier, her culpability also extends beyond the fact that she saw. It extends in the sense that the nature of being able to see, like Psyche had, comes from deliberate inquiry, her own actions, her own deeds. I think it comes from the ability that she had to actually reach that point. But think, and maybe it's because of her pride, like Mason said, which is inherent in her, or some other thing. But I think she did have qualities that made her somewhat unfit to see, in a sense. And maybe that makes her culpable in this sense. Similarly, again, I I feel like I do disagree with Mason, but I sim also don't exactly know why. And so, like, let's try. I'm, I'm going to try to talk through it to see, like, if we actually do disagree, because this is a great example, right, of epistemic disagreement. And it's like, mm -hmm. do we are we talking about the same thing, right? So, to Etha's point about it impacting Orwell's seeing, impacting her behavior, on 173 of the normal edition, and I'm not sure where it is in the PDF, but so after Psyche takes the lamp into her bedroom and sees, and we know from the myth that this is the point at which Cupid or Eros awakens and realizes that she's betrayed him and sort of leaves and rebukes her. Uh -huh. But in, in the, from Orwell's perspective, she writes when she see herself sees the god, and she says, though my body crouched where I could almost have touched his feet, his eyes seemed to send me from him to an endless distance. He rejected, denied, answered, and worst of all, he knew all I had thought, done, or been. A Greek verse says that, that even the gods cannot change the past, but is this true? He made it to be as if from the beginning I had known that Psyche's lover was a god, and as if all of my doubtings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings, bardia, questionings of the fox, all of the rummage and business of it had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. You who read my book judge, was it so? Or at least had it been so in the very past before the god changed the past? And if they can indeed change the past, why do they never do so in mercy? <laughs> Great paragraph. So I think that there's room for saying that it did impact, or should have impacted, what Orwell's interaction was with Psyche, first of all. But to more to Mason's point, so a couple of things, right? You've spoken about Psyche's relative innocence and Orwell's culpability. 
But there's a couple of things, I guess, since it's a little bit unusual to sort of make the transition between morality and epistemology, and we have to be careful about it. I would point out that depending on what we're talking about, innocence isn't the same thing as virtue, right? Like, so, although this is certainly false, a very classical way of defining knowledge, the, the nature of knowledge, is to say that it's a justified true belief. Now we know that there's, this is not all that there is to it because there's interesting thought experiments that show that it's, that's not all there is to it, right? So what two, const two constraints on the nature of knowledge, which are pretty widely endorsed, is that one, knowledge can't be the product of luck. So you can have true, like there's a, there's a difference between knowledge and true belief. And it's relatively easy to come by true beliefs. One, because one way to form beliefs is through perception. And if you're a pretty normal functioning specimen of the human species, your perception is usually reliable. And so if you form beliefs on the basis of your perception, you, you will likely have true beliefs, usually, right? Now, of course, you could be colorblind or something else. But generally speaking, the Cartesian fear about the perceptions is not fully, is not completely well-grounded. We can form true beliefs on the, on the basis of perception. So there's a difference between true belief, beliefs that happen to be true, and knowledge. So one constraint is that it's not supposed to be the case that your knowledge depends on pure luck. The other, and we might come back to that, but that's one constraint. The other constraint is that a lot of epistemologists think, so the question is, how are you justified in your knowledge? If you have a true belief, what's the difference between having a merely true belief and a piece of true knowledge? And the difference seems to hinge upon the question of justification. The thing that differentiates true belief from knowledge is how you actually justify or how you, how you come by the knowledge as opposed to the true belief. So there's different ways of accounting for justification, but however you account for justification, there are a number of epistemologists who think that the way we can describe this is to say that if you truly know, and if you have a good justification, you have a proper account for what you believe, then as an epistemic subject, you can be credited, like you get credit for what you believe. Like, so we don't just look to you as a source of true knowledge, of true beliefs or good information, but you're competent enough to be a reliable, you're reliable enough to be able to get the credit for what it is that you know. So the difference between, in, in, in terms of morality, which is, it's a, it's a quite a drastic shift, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that makes sense. I think that it's true that Psyche is innocent in the sense that she has perceptual experiences of the god and of her palace and of her world. But that because of that, that very idea that she's innocent, that she's non-culpable, isn't the same thing as saying that we should credit her for what she's actually experiencing. Because it still seems true to me, and I'm not sure if this is just me being bitter, but it seems true to me that there's still a huge part to play in the fact that the god chose Psyche. Like she is somebody who has been chosen and who has been favored in a, in a very specific way. And I don't know if it's true to say that all of that is because she literally deserved it. Like, I mean, I get, I get that she's pretty. Like there's a certain sense in which, of course, the, like in the myth, the idea just is that she's literally really, really beautiful. Cupid, the god of love, falls in love with her 
And that's part of the irony of the original myth, the idea that love itself would fall in love, right? But I just don't know if there's really anything, if that is wholly to Psyche's credit. One, because literally once you blow it up to the scope, once you take it beyond the myth and you talk about the nature of God, if God exists and other people, like it's very difficult, like that same kind of account won't work in a Christian framework because we must necessarily believe from the Christian framework, um, at least in the Western Christian framework, that everybody's fallen. And so, I mean, that's got to apply to psyche just as much as everybody else. And even if there's this weird situation where you have people, you have different tiers of fallenness. I mean, I don't even think that's a thing. I don't think anybody, anybody believes that. But even if you did, there's still got to be a situation in which we acknowledge that God doesn't desire us because of something that we have that he doesn't. No matter how beautiful Psyche was, no matter how virtuous, and this is also, I guess, probably an important part of why it remains in the realm of myth rather than a full-blown theology in Christianity, is because it wouldn't translate very well. But I'm just not convinced that her innocence, either epistemically or morally, is the same thing as saying, you've acquired virtues, you've fought the good fight, you've overcome your fallenness, maybe with grace, and now you really are a beautiful specimen of a deified human being. I still very much get the impression that you had some good fortune and this has happened to you and it's your good fortune to believe in the good fortune that's happened to you. And the same thing has not quite happened for Orwell. So there, that's one thing. I just don't know if innocence is quite the same thing as straight up virtue. Like we can definitely say that in a certain sense, Psyche was, as we're given to believe throughout the whole book, she was virtuous, she was good, she was kind, she was loving and all of that. But I just don't know what it would take to be credited with saying one day for no reason at all or no reason that I'm aware of, God picked me and made me his everlasting spouse or something like that. So her, I'm not sure that even if she is innocent, I'm not even taking a position on that. She might in some sense be innocent. And that, I think, reinforces my case that it's just innocence or naivety. She's been blessed by this thing that's happened to her. But it's not until arguably later that she actually has to put any work into it. And I, I mean, at this level, we might say that part of the work she is putting into it, and this might be to her credit, is that she goes along with Orwell's crazy scheme to betray her husband. It's, it's at least something she's doing. And I think that like, another important thing to keep in mind is that even though, even though she is innocent, she is still punished for betraying the God. And that is difficult to explain if it's all Orwell's fault. Like it, it seems like, I mean, maybe the God's just characteristically unjust, but if we, even if we, if we try to assume that the God is just, she still gets some kind of punishment and she seems aware of it. Like that is one instance in which she owns what she's going to do. She straight up says, I know what I'm doing and that I maybe I'm betraying the best lover in the world and that my whole happiness may be destroyed, but I've got to do it because I've got to do it for Orwell. I mean, this is what she's put on me to do. And even though she knows that it's crazy and delusional and that it's wrong, she, that, that is at least something that she, her, she can own. I don't know if she can, how much she can own, if she can own it all, the stuff that's happened to her before then. Which is, it sounds really odd now that I say it. It sounds as if I'm arguing that her disobedience is her first act of freedom. Um, and that's very deviant, and I'm aware of exactly how deviant it sounds, but I guess maybe that is what I think. So maybe I really do disagree fundamentally. 
So that's one thing. But the other thing to keep in mind is that this is all within parameters that the gods or God have already set. Whether or not we're epistemic victims or whether we're epistemically virtuous still falls within the limitations we have as finite creatures. And it's still the case that from her birth forward, Orwell's ugly, she's been mistreated, she doesn't have a lot of people who love her for herself, if, you know, very, very few people. And we still live in a world in which there's enough pervasive inequality to make us wonder what the intentions of God or the gods are towards us. Because, I mean, you could argue and say, yes, Orwell is to blame, she's culpable, because even though she accidentally or providentially had a true seeing of the God's house, and then she stifled the insight in her, and she still went along with her own way. That's true. I mean, she thinks she is culpable for that. But whose fault is it that she was born to an abusive king in a barbarous kingdom as ugly as sin? Like those all thing, all of those things had an impact or um, have an impact on her comportment morally and epistemically towards the divine. Similarly, Psyche's ex very different experience, the fact that she happened, presumably, I say presumably, but the fact that she probably inherited beauty from her mom, you know, because Orwell reflects on her mom's beauty, the fact that she had a different life in large part because she was loved so much from the time she was born by Orwell, by the fox, by everyone she met. All those experiences, which were not evenly distributed, have an impact on how we're likely to react to God or the stories of the gods or how we, even, even how we interact with our own religion. Even if you do like, I don't know if this is what happened for you guys, but even if you have like a very religious upbringing, it's still incredibly common for people to have like a reactionary rebellious phase in their adolescence or in their college years or something like that. But again, all of that, play, all of that has a causal story to be told about it in how we were raised, the experiences we had as young children, as adolescents, as adults. So this might be incredibly pessimistic, but I'm still doubling down on saying, even if Orwell is to blame, her blame still has other causes, which either way reflect on the gods. I think I can still confidently say that I can accommodate her culpability and still throw it back in the face of the god of the Grey Mountain and say, and if you wanted things to be different from the beginning, why weren't they? Like what, like what do you have against Orwell? What do you have against this poor ugly woman who just wants something to love? Yeah, so I guess that's, that's my response. Okay. Yeah, um, I think it might be wise to wait until we read the end of the book before addressing that any further, because there's definitely more to say about it after after part two. So I'll just, I guess we could probably just put a pin in that part of the conversation, <laughs> if that's okay. Hmm. So there's something that occurred to me that we should probably, that we actually probably should have been very careful of from the beginning, and that we really haven't been at all, <laughs> which is that I think we should have been clear and from this point on probably should be clear about whether we're taking a hermeneutic approach to this book or using it as a tool for either like you know discovering our own sense of like some kind of truth finding some with something out by it or just using it as a philosophical conversation piece and just kind of like wandering around with this stick in our hand as we <laughs> as we hike along through these conversations 
that's a really good point. And I, I'm glad you made it. And I regret that I didn't make it. Part of the pedagogical method that I practice from doing philosophy with children and young people is more of the latter perspective you were indicating, which is that a lot of this is kind of like, I treat it as a jumping off point for our own ideas um, without any particular goal in mind. It would, be, it would be different, as you appreciate, if we're just trying to literally look at the hermeneutics of Lewis. But I mean, I think we can draw that distinction. And so I'm perfectly fine with drawing it and we can do that from now on. I'm just happy to have thoughts circulating. But <laughs> if, if you want, we can try to more sharply distinguish between how, like, like even in bringing up the problem of divine hiddenness, I don't think it's possible, but I mean, the problem wasn't even properly stated at that point. Like Lewis published this in 1956. The problem with divine mm -hmm. hiddenness got popular in 1993. So that's a long period of time whenever right. people have talked about this. So I, I, to be fair, to clarify, I don't think that this book is an intentional address of the problem of divine hiddenness. And I'm not sure that Lewis himself explicitly either acknowledge the problem or realize that it was fully a problem. I think that any thoughtful religious person, it at least it occurs to them at some point that there is a mystery about why God or the gods seem to interact with people the way that they do. But I don't think it's a, like, I'm, I'm not trying to pit it as a rigorous response, such that at the very end we'll have a response to the problem. It's more like this kind of goes along with this in a really interesting way, maybe even unintentionally. Um, precisely because the problem was not yet concisely articulated. But there, I, I take your point that there is a difference. And so we can be, we can try to be clearer about what the difference is. I'm just excited that we're talking about it at all. But if <laughs> okay. we can, we can distinguish more carefully if you want. Well, I think, I think that maybe, maybe part of the source for some of the disagreements that we've had, which I mean, it's totally fine to like, even say like, okay, well, let's agree to disagree at the end of the day. Um, at least for these conversations, I think that's perfectly okay. So it's not that I have a problem with like, oh, you have a, a perspective different from mine, <laughs> you know, but what I do think has been sort of problematic is, and some of the words that we've been saying, yeah, we haven't been clear. And so maybe I should rephrase and say like, my focus is more on whether Orwell and Psyche are meant to be innocent or culpable or, or, or guilty, you know, and that contrast by Lewis's view, right? Because it, it could be that, like, we could look at the situation and disagree with Lewis about his own characters, which for you, David, may be exactly the case. So it seems to me that I, I think Lewis has set up Psyche as being innocent, and I think he has set up Orwell as being guilty. Um, so maybe I should rephrase, and that's why I say I think that Psyche is innocent and Orwell is guilty is because they're supposed to be. <laughs> Not because I haven't been thinking about any of this independently. It's only because mm. I think that Lewis sort of orchestrated the story that way. Um, I 100% grant that Orwell is most to blame in this story. If we're reading, oh, it, from yeah. a, if yeah. we're reading it from a purely hermeneutic perspective of like, what did Lewis want us to conclude, or at least to perceive from reading this book, this is an am amazing roast of Orwell. Um, as we will find, I mean, again, gesturing to whenever we finally read the last portion, yeah. but I can, like that, I have no contention with. Like, like clearly this is like, the more you read it, the more you're just like, you begin to realize. If anything, that's kind of one of the things which, it's not irritating, but it it made me think like, now that I've read it so many times, I've come to realize that this is very much a story about 
four walls love being corrupted, like in a four love sort of sense. And we're sort of supposed to witness her realization, her retrospective realization that this was the case. And we can see it from the beginning. And it takes her a lot of soul searching to figure it out. But our walls definitely exhibit A for somebody whose motivations were not as pure as she thought. And so, yeah, in that sense, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's difficult to defend Orwell in that regard because of all that we are given to see over the course of the reading. I think that that's a limitation on the story and because since it is very much about her love and about her motivations, I think that she is a great stand-in character for a lot of other people. If we wanted to generalize and talk more abstractly about the problem of the divine hiddenness or about other kinds of problems, the philosophy of religion. But as far as stories go, it's like, yeah, I mean, Orwell really messed up. We don't disagree about that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of figured, but still there's the key character of, of Psyche, which we do disagree on. And so that one I think is sort of like a, a good example of how this distinction between approaches would be important is because say, if I'm coming at it from like, well, I think that Lewis meant for Psyche to be innocent. You could be like, well, yeah, that's true. But she actually wasn't for these other, you know, philosophical reasons that have only come up after we officially started discussing the divine hiddenness of God that Lewis wasn't aware of and occurred nowhere in this book, but are perfectly valid. And so like if that, of course, that's just an example, but if that's the case, then you and I have been talking past each other this whole time. <laughs> and we may actually end up agreeing that Psyche is innocent and guilty in the sense of innocent in Lewis's or by Lewis's view. And also, of course, innocent, just like generally within the, within the context of the entire story, but of course, actually perhaps guilty from the outside. Now that we have some, some new thing that Lewis didn't consider. And in that part, full disclosure, I don't know how I like, so I, I think I could agree or I'm, I could countenance that Lewis intends for Psyche to be innocent, as I think you do. But mm-hmm. I, I literally don't know. I know that on my meta conversation about the problem of divine hiddenness, I don't think she's innocent. But I also don't know if she's innocent in the book. So that's something we might truly disagree on. But it's not so much I have a strong position and you have a strong position. I have a very weak position on Psyche's innocence. And so I don't know if I buy that even from Lewis's perspective, she's fully innocent. But that's, okay. that's something that I'm hung up on. And I can't explain why I feel that way until whenever we next talk about what happens in part two. Yeah. But, I, but I think that I, I don't have strong reasons, but I do have reasons for thinking that she still has a part to play that in which she's not completely innocent. But Okay. So let's make sure to bring that up next time, I guess. Yeah. And talk about whether, yeah, Psyche is finally innocent by Lewis, or as presented by Lewis. Hmm. Well, I think so. you can finally see why I suppose a lot. I suppose. I, it's always to emphasize the fact that, like, listen, I'm not trying to be objective. I just, uh, this is um, how I think. Um, this is a perspective I draw on. Um, you finally reached this. This is brilliant. Um. But I did, I'm curious though, if we ever were to speak from the perspective of hermeneutics as far as Lewis is concerned, it would be necessary to be more interpretive on a whole, wouldn't it? To um, come at his works from, like, to see if there are any parallels drawn between his works written at maybe a particular time in his life 
maybe the same point, maybe before. Because I think last time um, David spoke, he drew a difference between times in Lewis's life when uh, before he knew Christ and afterwards. I think he drew such a difference. I think wouldn't it be necessary to read these works altogether and then make interpretive propositions based on a whole? If that were the case, then it would be quite difficult for someone like me who's just reading one of his works for the first time to be able to come quite... Because all of the body of works that I can draw from, as far as Lewis is concerned, will be this one. Because this is the first one that I have actually read in it so much, almost in its entirety. And that wouldn't do him justice coming from me, so to speak, because I wouldn't be able to draw a parallel relationship between some of his works, and to, which would make the hermeneutics perspective not, not do him enough justice which you'd see why most of my propositions would be specific to this actual, to this work in particular and how I make interpretations, which in itself would be colored by my own belief system and upbringing and, and all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. And there's, I think there's value in looking at it from both ways. So, I mean, really, it just sounds like you're concerned that it, it's going to be hard to get into his head because you don't know that much about him right? Or about what else he's read uh, or what else he's written. I think that there is something to the idea that a work is self-contained. And so from that point of view, it's like, I think you should be able to read a book and uh, look at it just as a thing in and of itself without necessarily needing any outside context. Now, maybe that doesn't apply to everything ever created, but certainly with this, he's even said like, you don't need to be familiar with the myth. And certainly he doesn't go so far to even state you don't need to be familiar with my other stories. <laughs> I think that's just kind of a given. The assumption made by Lewis about his own work is that you should be able to read it and get out of it whatever he wants you to get out of it without jumping to any other subjects for research, right? You don't need to, he doesn't include any biographical information or any of that. So I don't think that you necessarily need to be concerned about it. So, and, and you can also see like in the book, we have the, a couple of, contextual landmarks maybe is a good way of of putting it where you've got the fox who represents a certain way of thinking like you have all these people who represent a certain thing or a certain way of doing things a certain mindset and so they sort of i think we're meant as long as you're thinking in terms of what's provided in the book then you can't really go wrong of course if we start throwing in a bunch of philosophical jargon (laughs) that perhaps Lewis was never familiar with if we get into the nitty-gritty of like the epistemic definition of knowledge and all this stuff then that might be going outside of the scope of what the book was really about and we might get kind of lost in the weeds and I think that's where we'd really lose the hermeneutic approach but you're also right that going outside of the book and looking at say like like David what you brought up in our last conversation about mountains and some other recurring themes in Lewis's works those can certainly inform our discussion. So I think there's value to both approaches, but I don't think you should necessarily be worried that like you're missing something or that you're not going to get the point of the whole book because like, once again, like it's a self-contained work. So theoretically you should be able to (laughs) without having to do any additional research at all. No, of course, Uh, as far as interpreting this book, yes, I completely concede that. Um, however, I was saying that if I were to make propositions about Lewis's perspective, I just thought that I might need to have read a couple of his works, see how he thinks um, pervasively as far as um, 
But if it's for this book, yeah, definitely I can. For this particular book, um, I can make my position based on what I've read. However, I just thought it necessary to emphasize that it's because of my own interpretation of this particular work. I'm not necessarily drawing anything from his own. I'm not saying anything to state certainly what I think he was trying to propose. It's just my interpretation of this specific work. Gotcha. And even, okay. Yeah. And even that, I could, I, I could still, maybe I'd have to wait till we read the second part. But even based solely on my interpretation of this book, I still hold opinions on whether oral is comparatively more culpable than psyche is even as far back as when it all started, which is what I was trying to propose, the nature, their nature, the thing that makes them culpable being inherent in their nature rather than what they've done. And it might seem arbitrary that the gods chose one over the other, but even from this reading, I, because to make that proposition, I would have to draw from Psyche's life before she was taken to the mountain, the things that she did in her life. I think it's so, it sort of shows a congenital disposition. It shows the nature of Psyche before she was taken away to the mountain, before everything that brought to that combination of being taken to the mountain and then being taken away by the gods to, be, to see the gods, so to speak. Um, I, I think where a premise from which you can draw what kind of a person Psyche is, and I think it is that nature of Psyche that we can compare to Oral's rather than what she was like after she had seen. Because then it won't be so unfair because the thing the epistemic footing is in, it's kind of lopsided because she's thin and oral hadn't seen. But I, I would draw from who she was before she even saw. Yes, she was beautiful and pe people treated her as such, almost like a goddess, so to speak. But even then, she had some challenges in the matter of speaking because she caused many people to go seek. She was called their curse. The whole point of being taken to the mountain was because she was seen as the accursed. I think if we parsed how she handled even that, it might show her nature. And then that, therefore, for me, is a starting point for a comparative exposition as to who's more culpable between psyche and oral. And that's solely from the interpretation of this book. So maybe to, we'll wait till I find out more in the second part. And I, I do think that the case can be made about their culpability solely from just this work. So, like, even though clearly the majority of our discussion has been about the literally the scene where she sees and everything after that, but clearly a good deal, and in fact, like, not just figuratively, a lot happens after that whole event and that leads us up to the point where Oral wants to even write this story in the first place. So in broad outline, really quickly just briskly moving along in terms of the rest of all that happens. We can just do it in broad strokes because that's what Orwell does. She paints it in broad strokes. But how do you guys how did you guys feel about the death of the king, which is one, which is like seems like a very big thing, oddly. And then of course what were the little bit that we're given to believe about all the rest. The fight with Argon and Trunia and then Orwell just becoming a queen and living her life trying to sort of stifle or forget this experience of Psyche and the mountain and everything while she effectively becomes, you know, the queen of Gloam. Any thoughts on just that sort of long, there's stuff there too. Um, it's not as necessarily as 
angst inducing as the fear that we, ex you know, some people can experience spiritualities, spiritual realities that others can't, but it's still worth commenting on because it's literally the majority of Orwell's life. So what did, you, did you guys think of, have any thoughts about that sort of very brisk portion of the book where literally almost half the book, probably half the book has been this one struggle between Orwell psyche and the God and their perceptual differences. And then almost as though it was like nothing at all, just quickly skipping maybe 40 years. It's like, yep, and I did all of this as queen. So any, do you guys think anything about that? We'll obviously have to come back to everything else. And I'm, I really, I wanted to know what Diego thinks and I want to know what Anne thinks because they're just so like different, but we'll get to them eventually and it'll be great. But what do you, what do you guys think about wrapping it all up in terms of Orwell becoming queen and the kind of queen that she is. Well, so that was actually, I think my original question was, I'm not really sure <laughs> uh, what, what significance this all has. I mean, I can kind of guess, and here we definitely have to take the hermeneutic approach, right? I, I can sort of guess as to maybe some of the meaning behind it, which is, I don't know, maybe, maybe to say that, like, even though she did some great things, she didn't redeem herself, or even though, you know, she's some, like, high noble figure, and in one place she is not high or noble in another way, or as we'll soon see, in another place. So there's a little bit of that, but I'm I'm really not sure about, like, what sort of allegorical or, like, metaphorical meaning the death of the king has, or the deal with Trini and Argon has or her success as a queen, or even really the way that we see her personality manifest. I, I don't know, <laughs> I'm kind of at a loss. One thing that I will say though is, I'm not sure how Lewis knew this, but he really accurately describes what it's like to be in a position of authority, by, by my understanding. I am young so obviously I don't have that much but I have been afforded opportunities by the core you know and so I, I don't want to jump into the whole like coolie like this is everything that I got out of it but like it is as it's a unique kind of experience to like have that degree of almost control you know or authority that's a better word for it over other people and especially to have a whole host of major responsibilities for a group of people. And I just found that the way that Lewis described Orwell being lost and all of that and able to escape almost in it for so long to be very accurate. You can find yourself becoming a different person, not really changing inside, but just sort of, I don't know, maybe in the Jungian sense of like the inner and outer self, like your outer self just becomes very, very developed. And that's where all of your focus is, is just on that outer self and being decisive and doing things and trying to be wise, I guess, in a, in a very worldly sense of the word, just for the, the welfare, the survival of your group. So I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder where Lewis got that accuracy from, because <laughs> I, I don't know that he did. I mean, he, he did serve um, as an author officer at one point but i don't recall him did he have a leadership position at any point during the war world war one I? I think he did i know that i mean again i know that he was an officer but i don't know what that means because i'm a civilian piece of crap <laughs> so i don't know how high the rank was i do Not know that particularly high 
Yeah, it wasn't particularly high. And I know that, but I do know that he expressed, I think it, uh, where did he express it? I don't know, I'll find it. But I do, I do know that he expressed it. It was in the course of war and particularly being subject to authority that he came to really dislike people who sort of pretended to have authority without experience. So he definitely knew the value, I guess, a lot of us learn about the value of a good authority from being subject to bad authority. So he probably had a lot of experiences with that. But so, yeah, mm -hmm. but I don't think it was purely from his military experience, although that definitely played a part. I guess it's easy to forget. Now, I don't want to compare the Kush academic work that is being a professor with being in the military. I don't think there's a comparison. But he was a professor, right? He was a legit academic professor mm -hmm. and that's a different kind i do like i can't speak exactly to the level of orwall but even in the course of being like a graduate student like to be anywhere in a hierarchy in which somebody thinks that you're above them is a very unusual thing it comes out yeah. it comes out a lot whenever my students especially like the really nice southern ones like the texan ones when they instinctively call me sir, and I look around, I'm like, what about, <laughs> like, what about me scream sir? I am very clearly boy, young man, nino, muchacho, like, like I'm not a sir. But it's just a part of how, like, the dynamic of having to navigate that, having people take you more seriously than you probably objectively ought to be taken. Wow. And so there's, that's part of it. But I mean, in general, I agree, it's a good he would almost mistake Lewis for like a jaded royal himself and just like, and this has to be done and that has to be done. So it is, I mean, it is a really affecting part, even though it's not that big a part of the book. He does, he is able to really develop Orwell's character. And to Eva's point about maybe it would be helpful to know things about Lewis's own life or his other writings. It's worth, yeah. pointing, it's worth pointing out that Orwell is a character who Lewis developed for more than 30 years. He began trying to retell the myth of Cupid and Psyche when he was an undergrad. And, wow. it was, and it wasn't until, and he actually, so he originally wanted to make it into a poem. So at first it was in verse, and there are actually still remnants of that verse version of the story that exists. But it wasn't until he was much older that he clearly, in a sense, actually, towards the end of his life, not the complete end, but so if, if Till We Are Faces was published in 1956, Lewis died in 1963. So it was, he was clearly further along in his life than in being an undergrad whenever he finally produced it. And so definitely Orwell is a character who had been undergoing a lot of development along with Lewis for a very long time. And it falls into a kind of pattern as well. This is not the only myth that Lewis wanted to retell. It's the one that we're familiar with, but he does have something of a history of being fascinated by myths and wanting to retell them. Another myth that he wanted to retell, I don't know if you guys know much about Norse mythology, but he wanted to retell the myth of Thor and Loki, right? And so yeah. that was kind of like, a, in that version, he had wanted, he had intended to make Loki the good guy and Thor the bad guy. And, he 
similarly was able to recognize later retrospectively in his life, particularly in writing Surprised by Joy, which is kind of like his spiritual autobiography, not a complete bio autobiography, but on the religious side, in which he was able to recognize in his desire to retell the story at all, his own kind of rebellious spirit, which I think is very, we see very much in Orwall and Psyche, where it's kind of like, it follows kind of before its time, the trend of revisionary fiction, kind of like modern Disney, or yeah. maybe like the Wicked, like um, the Broadway play and the, and the novel, where it's like, what if things were different and we looked at it from the perspective of the underdog? Which is great, like it certainly gets butts in seats, it certainly sells. But I think another part, like a more meta point that Lewis realized in also wanting to do these retellings was that they were also a way for him to work through his own rebellion against the kind of orthodox message of the myths and against religion. So I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing that he never fully completed retelling the myths that he probably would have wanted to, but there it is does fall into a larger literary history of wanting to try to look at myths from a different perspective. But yeah, Orwell definitely is a character who has been sat on for quite a while in terms of development. So I think we see a lot of that in the complexity and also kind of the simplicity the simple complexity of her character. That's a really good point. And I think also kind of related to something that you mentioned is, or like of his selecting characters that you, that are, I guess, not ordinarily that protagonist as his protagonist. I think for Lewis, part of that, part of the metaphysical point of that maybe, to reuse your terminology, um, is to come at it from a more relatable perspective in the sense that you might have heard that like in the marvel and dc universes the key distinction is that and that has recently made marvel comics i don't know about the movies but that has made marvel comics so much more popular is that marvel's focus was on um like they have people who happen to have superpowers whereas DC was more about these superior beings that happen to come in the shapes of people. And so that's, that's a big reason for why Marvel has been a little bit more successful with a lot of their characters is because even though DC has like these icons like Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, all of them, even the human being among them are completely unrelatable. They're inhuman. You know, one is an Amazon, one is an alien. And then one is like, even though he's a human being, like he's the most inhuman of them all <laughs> in that he's a machine almost. Whereas Marvel, you see, you know, Iron Man has a suit, but he's also an alcoholic. Peter Parker is like, has weird spider powers, but he also has to like deliver pizza <laughs> and get good grades and, you know, take care of the people that he loves. And you see that that has a, a really big difference in how these companies sort of run themselves and I think that's really what Lewis was trying to do with these myths is that he noticed that there are these incredible stories that had these hidden spiritual or metaphysical truths in them but the problem was that they weren't entirely relatable because they were DC type myths where your protagonist was someone who was just like unbelievably powerful Odysseus is like incredibly wise and Thor is, you know, just like the unbeatable warrior, right? And in this case, like you see Psyche, your protagonist as like, even the way that he describes her, you know, is like something about her is just very, very different. And so he 
the reason behind him reshaping this myth is to look at it from a point of view that is uniquely human and not godlike. And you also see that, like, for example, in The Great Divorce, it's people coming from hell. And you find that it's a much humbler perspective. You know, he is on the bus coming from hell. And if he'd approached it, I don't know. I, I won't, I won't, I've been talking for a long time already, so I won't get into all the details. But you see, you know, in the screw tape letters, it's a hellish perspective that offers heavenly insights. And again, from The Great Divorce, it's a much more mild perspective, but still coming from hell from which you see many heavenly insights. Then from this book, from Until We Have Faces, you have this humble human approach to this myth, which is once again, just sort of like this looking up into heavenly insights instead of being like, I have wisdom from above and coming down to you and meeting you on your level. He sort of like tries to start with you on your level and then rise up into the heavenly truths. Um, so I think that's a common theme of Lewis's that you see over and over again in many of his different works. Yeah, I mean, it's even a little bit, I think that's a great point, Mason. And it's even a little bit worse because Lewis just reads us for filth. He asks somewhere rhetorically, he asks, why is it that in Milton's Paradise Lost, the most relatable character is Satan? And the reason is not good. It's entirely about the point that I've been reiterating, which is that from Lewis's perspective, we're fallen. And the reason why we have so much more in common with Satan than we do with God is because we're fallen sinners. And of course, we would relate to the anti-hero or to the antagonist because we're the antagonist. Like we are the ones who actually are the bad guys. And I think that it's very telling that in all of his literature, in all of his fiction, as you've been pointing out, in The Great Divorce, in Till We Have Faces, The Screwtape Letters, some, one of the things that makes them so delicious, like especially like The Screwtape Letters, like you, I, I, I think you've read it. You should read it if it's great. But I'll look into it. one of the things that's so satisfying about it is that it's just so messed up and you read it and you're like, oh, that's really good. Like you fall in with it and you're not literally, you know, a demon or a Satanist or anything, but you're like, damn, that's really insightful. Like that's so, that's so bad. It's, it's good. And I think that's just, it falls back with what I was saying earlier, which is that if you really take seriously, so it's interesting that Lewis should have the idea. Like it sounds like an interesting idea that goodness is original and that goodness is foundational and basic, and that therefore evil can't understand goodness as much, like, as much as goodness can understand evil, right? That's one thing, it sounds quaint, it's like a nice philosophical thesis, it's kind of pithy, you can pitch it, you know, you can ascribe it to Plato. But if you really believe it, and you also believe, so we have a conjunctive belief here, if you believe that evil doesn't understand goodness, and you also believe that we're evil, the conclusion you have to reach is that we don't understand goodness. And so it makes perfect sense that goodness would confuse us and probably even upset us. And that's exactly what you see in Orwell because her entire book is a complaint about her failure to understand the good. And so in that sense, our reading it at all the fact that we do sympathize so much with Orwell 
is a, it's not just a conviction of Orwell, it's a conviction of us because we're rooting for her and we, we don't quite understand all of the non-Orwell stuff. And so you're right, we could analyze it, we could like try to use analytic philosophy of religion to sort of elaborate theses and arguments, but it's really just one big smear against us in which we're just being trolled with the fact that we don't know what to expect from God. And so it's completely on brand that it would upset us. And so all of the complaining and the raving, the madness, the hiding, the, the, the pretext and the ulterior motives, all of that is very relatable because we're fallen sinful beings. And only by kneeling at the cold river of whatever, of the cold river of truth and taking a sip of this sort of objective perspective would we realize, oh my God, we are not as good as we thought we were. We're not as smart as we thought we were. And in fact, this entire thing, like Orwell said, is nonsense, like dust blown into our own eyes by ourself. So in one sense, like whatever else I feel about the book, it's an amazing burn. <laughs> and I don't know how to feel about that because it's, it does, it, it certainly applies. I fell in immediately with Orwell and it's like, yes, you tell it against the gods. And then by the end you realize, oh my God, you were wrong and I supported you. Like I look like a fool now. <laughs> and I really have no idea what goes on between Psyche and her divine lover, except that I don't like it and it makes me angry. <laughs> But it's good. <laughs> no, that that's a perfect explanation. Yeah, that was very, very well said. I think you're right. I, I won't even bother to restate it. I think you already said it perfectly. But yeah, 100% agree. And it's on brand for Lewis as well. I think that is his sort of like key, maybe not his single key thing, but like certainly a recurring message of his that we do see over and over and over again. Oh, yeah.